The following message is by Pastor Steve Lee of Emmanuel Community Church. More information about the ministry of Emmanuel Community Church can be found online at www.emmanuelcommunity.org. Yeah, this is a real gift from God to be able to be out here like this uh, in a November weekend. And uh, I don't know, I don't even want to say this is going to be the last weekend. Maybe uh, God will continue to gift us with uh, some more unseasonably warm weather um, before the winter really hits. Um, and so why don't we open up with a word of prayer, and then we will turn to the word. Father, we pray for uh, our nation right now in the midst of what is uh, incredibly divided and what seems like a very um, fragile uh, time in the nation's history where uh, there's so many strong feelings about this election. And we pray, Father God, that in the midst of that, that you would um, show your care and your love and your mercy uh, for the U.S. as you uh, guide the leaders of our nation into acting wisely and acting in a way that uh, would honor and care uh, for the people, the citizens of this land, um, not to act in any ways that would uh, be um, uh, self-serving, but ones that really demonstrate a servant heart for the sake of the nation, for everyone that is present in Washington. We pray for our hearts as well as we feel senses of disturbance or struggle or um, other emotions of fear and anxiety that even in this would be an opportunity to turn our hearts to you and look to you. Let's open our hearts to an understanding of what this kingdom of God is all about and to grant to us uh, not just head knowledge but a heart of response to be a part of that kingdom work that you're doing in our midst even now as we pray all this in Christ's name. Amen. All right. Sorry. So I think as all of you know, around 10.30 a.m. yesterday, most of the major news outlets declared Joe Biden the winner of the 2020 presidential election. But as you also know, this story seems far from over because, you know, President Trump uh, has not conceded defeat, uh, but instead has uh, made some pretty strong accusations that the Democrats uh, have committed basically massive fraud and have rigged this election. And it's hard to remember an election in recent history that has stirred such intense feelings on both sides. Uh, more Americans have turned out for this vote to vote in this election than any other previous election in U.S. history. In fact, we've broken the old record by over 20, 30 million, uh, just showing how much the outcome of this election has mattered to Americans. And when Jesus was accused of casting out demons in the name of Beelzebub, we saw that last week, right? He responded to them in Luke 11, 17, uh, uh, or actually verse 22, any kingdom divided against itself will be ruined and a house divided against itself will fall. And the truth is our nation is incredibly divided right now. And if we're really honest, so is the church. 
Uh, in 2016, I think many Christians um, who voted for Donald Trump uh, weren't really sure what to make of him. And I, I think, in fact, it was probably as much a vote against the Clintons as it was a vote for Trump. But in this election, uh, Christians who have supported Trump uh, are far more passionate and enthusiastic about his presidency. Pastor and author John MacArthur is quoted in a Fox News article uh, of having said to Trump, we love God, we desire to honor him and uphold righteousness in a society is what a church is supposed to do. So I said to him, referring to Donald Trump, uh, any real true believer is going to be on your side in this election because it is not just an individual. It's an entire set of policies that Christians cannot in any way affirm. But the passion against Trump is equally strong within the church, isn't it? Uh, John Piper, who I think it's fair to say shares almost all of John MacArthur's theological convictions, um, said in an article right before the election uh, in um, basically what amounted to an attack on Trump. I think it is a drastic mistake to think that the deadly influences of a leader come only through his policies and not also through his person. This is true not only because flagrant boastfulness, vulgarity, immorality, and factiousness, uh, factitiousness are self-incriminating, but also because they are nation-corrupting. They move out from centers of influence to infect whole cultures. The last five years bears vivid witness to this infection at almost every level of society. And here's the thing. Um, I think what is so unsettling to so many Christians about the current political climate is that it's not just how we feel about a particular candidate or a political party, but it's, it's because it's how it has made us feel about one another. And I don't think that's really something that's happened so much in previous elections. Oh, you're one of those, huh? I don't get how you can hold those positions and still call yourself a Christian. And both sides feel this way about the other right now. How can we believe in the same God and yet hold to such radically different views of what should happen in politics and how we see the world so differently? And I want to ask, what should our response be to what's happening right now? Is it a call to civility, unity? That might be part of it. But I think the church's response has to be much deeper than that. I think what we need to do is to stand firm in our witness that we are citizens of another kingdom. And therefore, we neither grieve nor gloat over the election results. Why? Because we have already pledged our allegiance to another king. And it is in him that we have placed our ultimate hopes. Listen, I think it is 
vitally important that as Christians, we engage in the democratic process and to study the different candidates and the political platforms and to make the most informed decision we can when we vote and we ought to vote. But the hope of our future ultimately doesn't lie in a particular politician or a political platform, but with Jesus alone. What I'm saying is our view of Donald Trump should not be a litmus test by which we determine friend or foe. Nor is it right to view Donald Trump as either the devil incarnate or the greatest hope of saving our country because he is neither. And in today's message, I want to talk about God's agenda for his kingdom, for this world, through what is called the kingdom of God. Because I think it has a lot to say about how many Christians are feeling coming out of this election. 2,000 years ago, a man was born into this world. And when he became an adult, he declared himself the Son of God. And under his leadership, there came about an unprecedented era of peace for his entire kingdom. And his name was Gaius Octavius, otherwise known as Octavian. And he was the first emperor of Rome, better known by his imperial title, Caesar Augustus. And he was born into wealth and nobility. His great uncle was none other than Julius Caesar himself, who after his death was declared a god by the Romans. And Julius Caesar adopted Augustus as his own son and named him the heir to his throne. And that's why Augustus, when he became emperor, declared himself the son of God, the son of Caesar. And the peace that he brought was known as the Pax Romana, which many of you have studied in your history classes. It was a peace that was unbelievably great for Roman citizens. But it came at a very heavy price for those who were conquered and brutalized under the Roman Empire. The Roman historian Tacitus wrote of Augustus, the motive of Augustus was lust of power. His judicial murders and land distributions were distasteful, even to those who carried them out. There had been peace, but it was bloodstained peace of disasters and assassinations. And in this way, Caesar Augustus proved to be no different than all the other world leaders that had come and gone in world history. They used brute force and power to bring about a peace in their kingdoms. But during Caesar Augustus' reign, another ruler was born who was unlike any other leader that the world had known. And his name was Jesus. He wasn't born into nobility or wealth, but was the son of a poor carpenter and his wife from an insignificant town of Nazareth. And as if that wasn't a humble enough origin story, he was born in an animal stall in Bethlehem because his parents were forced to comply with a census called by none other than Caesar Augustus. 
And at his birth, a huge company of angels appeared to a group of shepherds. They said to these shepherds, Glory to God in the highest, and on earth peace to men on whom his favor rests. Jesus, not Caesar, was the true ruler, in other words, who was going to bring peace to the world. And despite his humble birth, the prophet Isaiah prophesied of Jesus. In Isaiah 9, verse 6 to 7, For to us a child is born, to us a son is given, and the government will be on his shoulders, and he will be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. Of the greatness of his government and peace, there will be no end. He will reign on David's throne and over his kingdom, establishing and upholding it with justice and righteousness from that time on and forever. The zeal of the Lord Almighty will accomplish this. And so when Jesus would grow up into adulthood, he would announce his public ministry with this declaration in Mark chapter 1, verse 14 to 15. Now after John was arrested, Jesus came into Galilee, proclaiming the gospel of God and saying, The time is fulfilled and the kingdom of God is at hand. Repent and believe in the gospel. Matthew 4, 23 puts it like this. As he went through all, out all of Galilee, teaching in their synagogues and proclaiming the gospel of the kingdom and healing every disease and every affliction among the people. You know, when we think about what the gospel is, we think about statements like, well, the gospel is that God loves you and has a wonderful plan for you or that God died for your sins so that you can be saved. That's the gospel. And these are important truths, but that's actually not directly what the gospel is when you look at what Scripture says. The term gospel in Greek is euangelion, and that literally is translated as good news, good news. And it is almost always used to refer to a proclamation that a king has ascended to his throne. It's a very specific word for good news. It's a royal term. And so for Jesus, this, whenever he used this term gospel or good news, it was inseparable from his teaching on the kingdom of God. Jesus mentions the kingdom of God over 50 times in the gospel of Matthew alone. And so it's clear that this teaching of his kingdom was central to the understanding of his mission. And when we think about the word kingdom, the natural place for us to think about is a location, right? We think kingdom, it's a place. But the word kingdom in the Bible is more often used as a verb than as a noun. And even when it's used as a noun, it really is trying to describe more of an action in the sense of not so much kingdom of God, meaning a location where God reigns, but it is probably better translated as kingdom of God means the reign of God, the reign or the rule of God. And so when Jesus says the kingdom of God is at hand, he is not pointing to any location, but what he is saying is the reign of God as king has begun. But if that was the announcement, there's something strange about it, isn't it? Because you have to ask yourself, 
Hasn't God been reigning all the time in his creation? So why would Jesus say the reign of God has begun now? Well, the issue wasn't that God had somehow lost control of his creation. That's not what Jesus meant. The problem that Jesus is addressing is our rejection of God's leadership in our life and the devastating consequences that choice of humanity has made for the rest of creation. Ever since Adam and Eve ate from that forbidden fruit in the, in the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, in other words, God has been on mission to restore the broken relationship between him and humanity. And out of all of the nations, God chose Israel to be a beacon of light, to be his servant, to be a blessing to the other nations. But rather than leading the other nations to God, they became influenced by the other nations and began to follow foreign gods and their idolatries. And despite all of the warnings that God gave his people through his prophets, Israel never truly turned back to God. So judgment finally came. And Jerusalem was captured, and the temple was destroyed, and the people of God were sent into exile in Babylon. And God's mission to the world seemed all but hopeless at that point in time. And yet in that dark moment, God would send a message of hope through his prophet, Isaiah. In Isaiah 52, verse 7 to 10, it says, How beautiful on the mountains are the feet of those who bring good news, that's gospel, who proclaim peace, who bring good tidings, who proclaim salvation, who say to Zion, which is Jerusalem, your God reigns. Listen, your watchmen lift up their voices. Together they shout for joy. When the Lord returns to Zion, they will see it with their own eyes. Burst into songs of joy together, you ruins of Jerusalem. For the Lord has comforted his people. He has redeemed Jerusalem. The Lord will lay bare his holy arm in the sight of all nations. And all the ends of the earth will see the salvation of our God. So we run into this word again, good news, gospel. And the good news being announced is that even as Jerusalem lays in ruins, God still reigns. And one day he will return to Jerusalem as a triumphant king to the sound of shouts of joy and bring peace to the world. And what Isaiah is saying through this passage is that if it depended on the faithfulness of Israel, there is no hope. But God recognized that. He found no one who was willing or worthy to stand in the gap on behalf of him and his people. And so what God says is, by my arm, in other words, by myself, I will save this world. I will save my people. That is my burden to bear, to save this world. And so you see that theme developing for the rest of Isaiah, which God says is, my people are unfaithful, but I will remain faithful and save this world. And so you get passages like Isaiah 59, Verse 15 to 16, truth is nowhere to be found, and whoever shuns evil becomes a prey. The Lord looked and was displeased that there was no justice. He saw that there was no one. He was appalled that there was no one to intervene. So his own arm achieved salvation for him, and his own righteousness sustained him. Isaiah 63, verse 5 and verse 8 to 9. 
I looked, but there was no one to help. I was appalled that no one gave support. So my own arm achieved salvation for me. He said, surely they are my people, children who will be true to me. And so he became their savior. In his love and mercy, he redeemed them. He lifted them up and carried them all the days of old. Isaiah also prophesies that the servant that God is going to raise up will accomplish all of this through unimaginable suffering. And if you keep reading that prophecy we looked at the beginning about the one who brings good news, about this king who will come riding into Jerusalem to declare the reign of God had begun, you find these words a few verses later in Isaiah 52, verse 13 to 15. See, my servant will act wisely. He will be raised and lifted up and highly exalted. Just as there were many who were appalled at him, his appearance was so disfigured beyond that of any human being and his form marred beyond human likeness. So he will sprinkle many nations and kings will shut their mouths because of him. Commenting on the songs of Isaiah, N.T. Wright writes, The shock of discovering that this royal servant was called as part of his obedient vocation to die an unjust and shameful death is almost too much. It is as though the prophet is pointing into the dark, hardly able to believe what he finds himself saying. But he claims to know three things. First, that redemption will come through the work of Yahweh's anointed. Second, that it will involve intense suffering and death through which the exile-causing sins of Israel will at last be dealt with. And third, that this achievement will be the work of Yahweh himself. 700 years after the death of Isaiah, Jesus fulfilled Isaiah 52 when he rode into Jerusalem to the shouts of blessed is the king who comes in the name of the Lord. But after his triumphal entry, Jesus does something that made no sense to anyone, including his most committed followers. Rather than claiming the throne of David and declaring himself king, he gave up his life on a Roman cross. The question is, why did Jesus do this? Well, what the Gospels tell us is that his death on the cross became the very means by which Jesus became king and secured a kingdom for God and peace for the world. When John the Baptist was born, his father, Zechariah, prophesied over him and helped us to understand the nature of the peace that Jesus had come to bring in Luke chapter 1, verse 76 to 79. And you, my child, will be called a prophet of the Most High. For you will go on before the Lord to prepare the way for him, to give his people the knowledge of salvation through the forgiveness of their sins. Because of the tender mercy of our God, by which the rising sun will come to us from heaven, to shine on those living in darkness and in the shadow of death, to guide our feet into the path of peace. In other words, what Zechariah was saying is that the peace that Isaiah prophesied, the peace that the angels declared, 
the peace that Jesus came to bring to this world was not political peace that would end all conflict and violence in our world. It wasn't even an inner peace of our soul that would give calm in our hearts. It was peace with God, the forgiveness of our sins. In other words, the peace that was shattered when Adam and Eve ate the forbidden fruit was now being restored through Jesus' death on a cross. And as we saw when we did that lesson on heaven and earth, heaven is basically understood as God's space, and earth is basically understood as our space. And sin would divide God's space and our space. But through the cross of Jesus Christ, heaven and earth were reunited once again into a common place. And that is the message of the gospel, that we have peace with God through Christ's death on the cross. And that's why when he died, the curtain of the Holy of Holies was ripped in two. It was torn, symbolizing that we have now access to God through what Jesus had done. And at that moment that Christ breathed his last, an earthquake erupted on the earth. And it is interesting that a centurion, a citizen of Rome, is the one that declared that not Caesar, but speaking of Jesus, he said, surely he was the son of God. And so as we pledge allegiance to the king, who is Christ alone, we become a part of that kingdom. This means that we not only have access to God and intimacy with Him through Jesus Christ, but we also join with Him in His kingdom work. And the way that we do that is by telling the world that Jesus is King and showing it through our actions by following Christ's example of self-giving love. And this is the passage that I looked at last week, but I think it is so relevant for us today. And so I want to close with that for today's message as well. In Luke chapter 22, verse 24 to 30, a dispute also arose among them as to which of them was considered to be the greatest. Jesus said to them, The kings of the Gentiles lorded over them, and those who exercise authority over them call themselves benefactors. But you are not to be like that. Instead, the greatest among you shall be, should be like the youngest, and the one who rules like the one who serves. For who is greater, the one who is at the table or the one who serves? It is not the one who is at the table, but I am... I am among you as one who serves. You are those who have stood by me in my trials, and I confer on you a kingdom, just as my Father conferred one on me, so that you may eat and drink at my table in my kingdom and sit on thrones, judging the twelve tribes of Israel. Jesus tells his followers, My kingdom is not like the kingdoms of this world. It is not about trying to gain more power and influence in society, but about taking the position of weakness and servanthood. Jesus intentionally chose not to come from the ruling class, but from among the poor. He, of all people, should have chosen to be born into wealth and into power, but he didn't. He chose to be identified with the weak and the marginalized and the disenfranchised. And as I said earlier, it is our civic responsibility to participate in the democratic process. And it's okay to have an opinion on who you think should have won this election. But we always have to guard our hearts 
that we don't put our ultimate hope in politics. We aren't commanded to accomplish kingdom purposes by legislation or through governments. You know, it's interesting, as staff, as we were kind of coming up to this election, I think one of the prayers that we were praying was, God, whoever wins, Biden or Trump, let it be a landslide, you know? Just whoever wins, let it be such a crushing defeat that there is no uncertainty about the outcome. Because we recognized what a tinderbox America is right now politically. And the exact opposite happened. In some ways, as we look at it from human wisdom standpoint, things couldn't have gone worse. I mean, you are watching, right? 3,000 votes, 2,000 votes, and it was just like, oh my goodness. And in a way, I can look at that and feel like, man, that was an unanswered prayer that God failed us. But I wonder if God did that in order to expose the idolatry of politics that exists in this country. Because when I look at what's going on in social media right now, people are either praising the name of Jesus and thinking this is the exodus all over again, set my people free, or they're weeping like it's a funeral and America has lost all hope now. And there's something very wrong about that to come from the lips of believers. Because our ultimate hope is not in Washington. We already have a king. And he will accomplish his purposes, regardless of whether there's a Democrat or a Republican in the Oval Office. Amen? And we need to bear witness of that to a world that is reeling right now, a nation that is spinning out of control. We need to be able to declare this loud and clear. I sincerely believe God hates abortion and God hates racial injustice. I sincerely believe God cares about environment and creation. And He cares about the infringement of religious liberties that's happening all across our country. What I'm saying is, I don't think a single political platform captures the heart of God perfectly, do you? And the moment that we start to see this world, see our neighbors through the lens of politics, the real danger is we end up dismissing entire groups of people as basically beneath our love, undeserving of our compassion or even our friendship. And when I look at what Jesus teaches about the kingdom of God, I think what he is saying is keep your allegiance pure. Watch out about what you give your heart to in this world. And when you are in this world, who you represent is me and my agenda. And the way that that kingdom agenda will be fulfilled is not by getting more of our people in Congress or getting our guy in the Oval Office, but it's when you and I rise up as kingdom citizens to love our neighbor as ourselves as Christ himself would love them and show them that regardless of our politics, there is a God who loves them and cares for them. 
And that is what I believe the church is called to do in the season of incredible unrest and chaos and polarization in America today, is to let them know that there is a king who reigns in this world and that he loves them and has died for them and purchased their lives with his own blood. Amen? Let's pray. I really, frankly, don't know where you stand on the political side, uh, which side of the aisle you guys are on. The truth is, you know, I don't think we talk politics a whole lot at ICC, but I get enough of a sense that we do have people who support both sides at ICC. And that's okay, that's okay. Because what binds us together as brothers and sisters in Christ is so much greater than what our political views may be. And I, I pray that in this season of incredible struggle and pain in this nation, we as the church would not politicize the gospel. But what we would do is bear witness to the true King of Kings and Lord of Lords faithfully by testifying of the difference that Christ has made in our own life that has nothing to do with what's going on in politics, but how he rescued us and saved us. And this is not just a verbal message we're called to bear. He calls us to live that out in action in the way that we would care for and serve and love others, putting them first and not seeking positions of power and influence, but taking a position of weakness in order to lift others up and show them the love of God. And I wonder what are the ways that we could demonstrate that love to our neighbor right now in this season and how we can stand as a group of people that can testify to the world that we who may hold different political persuasions even in this community can say but yet what binds us in Christ is far greater than anything that can divide us because we have all been washed by the blood of Jesus Christ so would you just pray that for a couple of minutes and we're gonna go into taking the Lord's table together as a church family and we want to affirm that oneness and the unity that we have in Christ but just I want to give you a minute or two just to just to come before the Lord in prayer even as you reflect on your own feelings about this election and what's going on right now in Washington to come before the Lord in prayer noteworthy that when Christ was led to the cross he put a crown on his head and put a robe on him and it was done as an act of mockery but what they didn't realize was that they were actually fulfilling a prophecy 
that through this act of self-sacrifice on the cross, Christ was going to be enthroned as king over his creation. Above the cross, the Romans, interestingly, put a sign that said, King of the Jews. The Jews protested and said, He is not our king. Could you change the sign and say, He claims to be king of the Jews? And in an odd moment of stubbornness, the Romans said, The sign stands as is. It's going to read, King of the Jews. And there, declaring to this world, was a message that through the death of Christ on this cross, he was perching, purchasing for himself a people washed in his blood, saved from their sins, rescued from death. And every time we come to this Lord's table, that's the confession that we bear witness to. It's because of what Christ has done on the cross. My sins are atoned for. I can stand before God, an innocent person, declared righteous because of what Christ has done for me. That's what we want to do at this time as we come to this Lord's table. What we say as we come to this table is, my hope is in Christ, in Christ alone, who alone is the one who died for me. Because of his blood, I stand before God, righteous. And I want us to realize that we're doing this as a family. The different ethnicities, different age groups, different socioeconomic classes, different political leanings that we have in this room. And yet, we stand here as this amazing church family that says that we love one another because Christ first loved us. And what an awesome witness that is to this world, isn't it? So let's go ahead and take from this bread first, and then you can take from the cup. And then just go ahead and just pray for a few minutes, and I'll close us in a word of prayer before our worship team closes us out in some worship. Father, as we have come here and taken this communion together as brothers and sisters in Christ, we stand here to testify of your goodness for us. Thousands of years ago, you have promised us a servant who would return to Zion, to the shouts of joy, but who also would be disfigured beyond human recognition because of what he would suffer on our behalf. And all we can say is thank you, God, that in what could have been such hopeless situations that we face in our life, in all the ways that we feel let down by the things of this world, you always remain faithful. You remain good. You remain true to your word. So we thank you for the cross. But we also thank you for this community that your cross has built. We thank you for your kingdom that brings us together as fellow citizens of the kingdom of God. Grant to us 
the ability to represent you well to this world and be that beacon of light that shows the hope of Christ to a world that is living in darkness and searching for answers. May we faithfully testify and bear witness to the saving work of Jesus Christ.